you are listening to another fabulous jam from the Rattledgen Broadcasting Network. This is The Long Road to Ruin, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. I am, of course, joined tonight by my co-host with the most. I use that phrase with everybody. It's really not special. But he is special. Don't let me fool you. He's an awesome guy, and he's better than Four Loco. Ladies and gentlemen, he's Sean Comer, and you're not. How you doing, Sean? Welcome, everyone. And quite frankly, if you grew up right around the time Mark and I did, that right there that opened up the show, that was baby-making music right there. It, it that just... is, of course, that is of course the opening theme to Batman the Animated Series, which we will begin our journey, our four-week journey on tonight, Batman the Animated Series Volume 1. And you're right. If there's one thing that came, if there's one good thing that came out of the Tim Burton Batman, it was the inspiration for that theme. You know, we should just be counting ourselves lucky right now that Blog Talk Radio let us have this show. <laughs> now, 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 positive, positive energy, Sean. Positive energy. We haven't, you and I haven't rock and rolled for for quite some time. Um, our last show we had to put on the back burner um, because of this and that. And uh, but we're finally, you know, we got to hang out last night and talk uh, talk Comic Con on the Whiskey Rebellion. That was Tuesday. So the other night, <laughs> and uh, but we're but we're back, man, with the original jam here. Long road to ruin. Sell positive energy. I, be aggressive. I, I, be aggressive. Oh, oh, no. no, Mark, you don't get it. I am being positive. I'm positive that I shit in the wrong primitive radio god cereal at some point because <laughs> tonight is just. It's been about 30 minutes of, no, actually about 45 minutes more like, of complete and utter false starts and messes and snags. It started when I asked Mark at about 10 minutes to showtime, hey, can you stall for about 30 minutes so I can just go wash off the LeBron James and double overtime sweat for a few minutes? Um, I had a work thing that ran just a little bit longer than I needed it to, and I wasn't quite ready to go on the air yet. He tells me, yeah, sure, no problem, I'll put it off. You know, I get out, I get my hair dried off, I get my Pepsi in front of me. And then I'm left to just kind of level grind on um, uh, Kingdom Hearts Final Mix for about 15 minutes because we couldn't figure out why Blog Talk wasn't letting us dial into the show. So finally we get in with two minutes until airtime, and now I can't find my water bottle. Um, oh, for God's sakes. That's it. Everybody, good night, everybody. You know, you know what? <laughs> Just Fuck you! Until the handle breaks off. Um, no, and it's, it's, oh, and by the way, I might add the lead up to the show also included the included the phrase. And um, if I may have the home stenographer read back just a little, just a little bit. Yeah, we'll bump to nine thirty. Ellipses. Sorry, phones in pants, pants on floor. So I come home. All right, since we're since we're, we'll eventually get to Batman the Animated Series. I booked this show for two hours. If we spend twenty minutes talking about it, I'll feel satisfied. But let me first tell you how I came home tonight. All right, and uh, I, and in this scenario, I will play Ronan the Accuser while <laughs> while I stare at my wife Peter Quill, otherwise known as Star Lord. Um, so I come home from work uh, between five thirty and six, and I gave her I gave my wife fair warning. 
um, either make dinner or I'm stopping for ribs. And she said, stop it, fatty. I got you chicken dinner. Don't worry about it. Just come home. I said, okay. I walk in the door, and I hear my daughter, who every day, you know, is just the most wonderful thing in the world. She comes to the door. She says, daddy. And ever since the day she was born, she's been running to the door to greet me like a dog. And it's the greatest thing ever, right? And she says, daddy. And, I, and she's happy to see me. And I said, hello, sweetie. And then I realize she's not wearing any clothing. See? And I'm looking at my, my naked three-year-old, and I, was, and I look up, and I see her mother, and I say, um, why isn't she wearing any clothing? And this, this woman says to me, she says, because she doesn't want to. And somewhere, <laughs> and somewhere in this story, I got the phrase, clothing is always wet and always dirty. Now, I have an urge to call DCF right there, but I hold back. I hold back from calling DCF on my own wife. And, and just accept the fact that at some point my daughter's clothing is both always wet and always dirty. That's apparently what Lily said. I don't understand it. But that's why she wasn't wearing any clothing. So I said, well, if she's not going to wear any clothing, and, I, and then I do this Clark Kent into Superman thing, only my Superman outfit's at the dry cleaners, so there's just me in a pair of underpants with the whole cut out because we used to have dogs. Let that Merlot swirl in your mind a little bit. <laughs> Context is for Blog Talk Radio, everybody. So, um, the, point, the point of this story is, hang on, the point of this story is that I just threw my clothing, yeah, hither and thither, and in my pants was my phone. So when Sean tried to call me to say, hey, bump the show, um, the, the phone in pants, pants on floor, somewhere where I wasn't. Ta-da! Both two. To be absolutely clear about something, about something here, <laughs> I, I want you to think about that entire last anecdote, and I want you all to consider the possibility that somewhere live, somebody may have just tuned into that, into that show, on the, just right at the phrases. My daughter says clothing is always wet and dirty. There I am staring at my naked three-year-old. Um, if she doesn't have to wear clothing, I don't have to. These have been, these have quite possibly been somebody's introductions to the Rod and Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Rod and Broadcasting, we're not wearing any pants, ever. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say we talk a little Batman, shall we? He's wearing pants. He's wearing... Let's talk about Batman. Batman's wearing pants. He's wearing underpants over his pants. He's wearing battle armor. He's staring at uh, Superman, who's got red eyes on him, and they're about to go a clobbering. All right. Um, so we started this podcast um, a year over a year ago, and we were focusing on movie franchises. And then Sean, a couple of months back, before I went on the Jonas Exodus, hit me up with the idea of, Kind of expanding our repertory uh, into uh, television, and he wanted to start off with a seminal cartoon of uh, of the '90s, uh, one that really was monumental in the landscape. Uh, it drew from the 1989 Tim Burton, Michael Keaton Batman, and it's taken on a life of its own, uh, and, it, and it's one of the uh, high points of the Batman legacy. Batman the Animated Series. 
Sean, what made you decide to go in this direction as co-host of the show and, you know, and somebody who, you know, obviously puts a fair amount of input into what direction it takes. What made you decide to say, Hey, let's start doing TV shows and let's start with this one. Well, you know, that's a great question. And I'll get into why I disagree about how it draws the most heavily from the Tim Burton, Batman movies a little bit later on. But, for right now, what actually inspired this was one night when I was sifting through my vast Netflix catalog, and I happened to stumble across Green Lantern, the animated series. If you're not familiar with this, it ran on Cartoon Network for a single, absolutely extraordinarily and extraordinarily and unfortunately short-lived season. As I was watching it, I, I quickly realized, I, I started kind of drifting, letting my thoughts just kind of meander a little, meander and rest a little bit on the various outstanding animated properties that DC has produced for television and home video over the course of about the last, oh, let's just say, for to really go back far enough, about 20 years or so. Um, even further, if you want. Well, uh, no, no, September 5th, 1992 was when this debuted. So, yeah, that would be about 22 years. And I thought, wow, we should really... We're all about franchises on this show and charting their evolution. And really, the DC animated universe, especially as it's been envisioned by Bruce Tim and Paul Dini, is really kind of an animal, kind of a franchise unto itself, something that's entirely, almost entirely apart from almost any other DC properties, um, especially in terms of the live action ones. But I thought, well, do we really want to start a look at those with, with Green Lantern? I mean, that, or should we go back and look at the shows that made a show like Green Lantern possible? And, of course, I contacted Mark about this, and one thing we agreed upon was that only there was only one show that made sense as a jumping-off point for this, and that was Batman the Animated Series. Because prior to that, really, the best-known animated DC property was the Super Friends. And, and I'm sorry, I know there are a lot of people that grew up with it and think it's so cutesy and funny and misses their definitive vision of everything that DC properties should be. Um, don't take this personally, but fuck you all for reasons we'll be getting into throughout this series. But well, look, hang on. In defense of the in defense of the Super Friends, it was it was set for a, a, an audience with a with, with a mindset of everything for children should be sterilized. You know, I, I, it was what it was. You know, and it and it kind of fit into that Hanna Barbera um, era of. Uh, animation where everything was very lighthearted and very sterilized and very safe for children and you know it, it was what it was I mean I, I enjoy it from that point of view um, I didn't enjoy it when they started when, when they started focusing on the one fire starter character um, and I felt like the show revolved around him way too much but but overall I mean for, for a show that was for a show where people assume kids are morons um, and can't take anything uh, too seriously. It was fine for what it was, but obviously, um, 
but that but I think that leads into a discussion of why Batman the animated series was so great. Well, right. That that is one of the things that makes it so great. It's the fact that Paul Dini and Bruce Tim went about this in a fashion that they actually wanted to give their audience, which at the time was it debuting on Fox Kids, was children, not teenagers, not adults, kids, wanted to give them credit for their intelligence. That wanted to take some of the more accessible, sanitized tones of the Silver Age and mix them with something that also gave the characters some gravitas, that gave them some meaning, that really made them into fleshed-out human beings. Take the darkness of, of the Tim Burton movies and of the way the comics were starting to were trending in the early 90s, but... Yeah, yeah let's, let's, but let's pause on that for a second. Let's, let, let's, really quick, Sean, let's talk about what comics were like in the 90s because um, I read comics in the 80s and, every, and, every, and there was a lot of you know, far-out fantasy would be one way to describe it. We get to the 90s and that's when the gritty realism started to creep into a lot of the comics. That's when you start getting your spawns and this is your Todd McFarlane Spider-Man era and, you know, while there's always been death in comic books and, and, and the needle on that has kind of swayed due to the comic code between far-out fantasy and, um, you know, and, and some more serious stuff. I mean, you know, it was the 80s that gave us Demon in a Bottle, as I recall, but uh, in the Iron Man series. But I feel like the 90s, as I was reading comics back then... Um, I, w- is I they- warn you right now, Ben Cologne is going is going to start shooting dirty looks our way from Brooklyn if we don't also cast a disapproving look at Rob Liefeld. Yes. Um, but I feel like in the 90s, uh, there was a distinctive turning away from, um, from, a, from a lighthearted sort of comic book theme and focusing almost entirely on that sort of gritty... Uh, I don't want to keep saying realism because there's still comic books where you know people were irradiated with radioactive this and that, you know, and got superpowers. You, know, you can only go so far with that. But it, there was a sense of... Um, there was a sense of, of grim, of... Uh, not dreariness, but um, there was a darkness that sort of over Marvel and DC, and I think more so especially DC, uh, where, you know, you really started to, you know... They started not worrying about what you know how old the audience was, and just decided to write really interesting storylines. And and kids stayed with it anyway because the storylines were that good. But you could just as easily see these being pitched towards adults as you could uh, children, which was I think a marked difference from the way comic books were marketed in the past. They, well, they were. It was the age of Liefeld. You know, it, it was the age of like you said, young blood or. Uh, Spawn and Youngbloods and um, uh, who else? I would maybe throw Deadpool in there too. Um, uh, Cable, uh, ridiculously disproportionate bodies, uh, guns that were bigger than entire human torsos. Everything was extreme. Everything was over the top. Everything was dark and bloody and grim. It just kind of became the way to go at the time. But 
this was one time when somebody actually got the balance just about right. Take stories from the Silver Age that everybody could follow that wouldn't be too grim and dreary as to put some people off and manage to give it just enough, just, a just right shadowy edge. Um, let Andrea Romano pair the characters with voice actors who truly breathe life and personality and existence into these characters just right off the page. Throw in the fact that this was a time in Warner Brothers animation when everything was absolutely gloriously and atmospherically scored by an actual live orchestra and how there was very, very little stock music used for each of these episodes and how scoring each individual scene in each individual episode gave everything its own organic feel of progression. And then finally, top it off with the fact that Deanie and Tim, Deanie especially, um, had the imagination to do things with these characters that caused something that to date, I don't think very many, if any other licensed properties have ever done for the source material that preceded them. They managed to create things that were so original, so beloved, so well-received that especially the likes of changing one particular character's entire backstory, which we'll get to in a second, managed to shift the entire way that DC viewed that, char- viewed that character's canon and also managed to introduce freshly and originally from the animated series what has become both one of DC's most popular figures and at the same time, I would argue quite possibly one of its most overexposed and overused. But, and we'll get, to, we'll get into, the, uh, into the specifics of those in just a little bit. But the fact is, I, I, I challenge you, Mark, right here and right now, think about all the different adaptations that have been, that have come about from comic source material over the course of about the last um, 25 years or so, can you name one adaptation that has had the kind of overall impact upon a franchise that this one has? Uh, No, really. I mean, I think that's why I said this one is sort of the high watermark in animation. You know, as as you were talking, one of the things that jumps out about this was it wasn't afraid to be uh, a different kind of cartoon uh, it wasn't afraid, you know, this Batman the Animated Series almost comes across as Pulp Fiction at times. And I don't mean the Tarantino movie. I mean actual Pulp Fiction. Um, these were little stories, uh, and yes, it focuses on a guy in tights running around, but this is probably one of the most accurate depictions of Batman without the needle going totally towards the morose Dark Knight, Nolan, you know, where is the trigger side. Um, but it also definitely avoided, while there, you know, there are light moments in the series and in the character, it also definitely avoided the, you know, the Super Friends version of Batman, you know, or the going into space comic code version of Batman. 
Um, what one of the great things about Batman the Animated Series was it had enough bravery to spend time in episodes without a villain, without a, a supervillain. You know, I, uh, around the same time that I, was watching, that I was watching Batman the Animated Series in preparation for this podcast, I was also watching uh, the Transformers cartoon. And while I have a lot of really positive things to say about the cartoon, you know, as, we, as you may remember from our uh, podcast um, from the beginning of July on, on the Transformers trilogy with Michael, uh, Michael Bay, I said there was a lot of grist for uh, the movie mill in those cartoons that I wish they had used more. Um, but one of the things that kept popping out to me that was very different from Batman was that, you know, Megatron would so start out small. It was always about, you know, I need, we need energy to take back the Cybertron to win the war against the Autobots to suddenly he wanted to rule the universe. It was as if the writers couldn't help themselves. You know, the villains have to be all villainy. If you look back at the sort of the 80s uh, uh, pantheon of villains, Mumra, Skeletor, Megatron, you, you know, they always were over the top. And I guess, you know, if Robert Winfrey were here, he would tell you, you know, sometimes that's what you need. You need a, you need a great sort of Liberace-esque over-the-top villain uh, to, to balance out your hero. One of the great, but that, that gets old after a while, especially when it's all the time. And certainly Batman has his fair share of over-the-top heroes. But one of the things that, if, if someone were to, were to say, come up with a word that would describe Batman the Animated Series Volume 1, one word, it would be understated. There were so many episodes where uh, they would spend time with not one of Batman's supervillains, um, or they would spend time with one of the, the, the random gang bosses in Gotham. And these were understated plots and understated characters. And that might sound like a criticism, but it's, I actually applaud them for that. Because you got to see then, in a show that's meant for children, oddly enough, you got to see a lot of character coming out because you weren't so busy pounding the plot into the, the viewer's head. You know, if you watch, again, if you watch Transformers, G.I. Joe, Thundercats, He-Man, you know, it was plot, 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 and characters sort of just delivering dialogue, and there's a lot of action and pretty colors, and, you know, the kind of thing that would keep a young boy interested in what he's watching on TV. I would tell you, I would almost find in some cases kids having a hard time watching Batman the Animated Series because it's dreary. You know, it, it, in terms of uh, its color on TV, um, it's it, uh, you know not quite as it's not quite as sepia toned as as a Zack as a Zack Snyder movie, but you know it, it's a lot of grays and blacks and browns. Um, this isn't leaping off the TV for you, and there are times, by golly, in a half hour uh, cartoon where things are just still and it's quiet. And the audience has time to kind of think about what's going on. And, I, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk about this is this is really one of the most unique cartoons I've ever seen on what was supposed to be an afternoon uh, dedicated to children 7 to 14. You know, really the way I think we ought to go about this is for each season, for as much as you and I could happily sit down 
and watch every episode probably an entire afternoon and never, ever miss the time we've lost, I think the best thing that we could possibly do be to just try to pick out the best episodes from each, the really seminal ones. And, and I'll be the first to admit, a lot of those are going to come from the first season. Um, because while I don't think any of the seasons is necessarily bad, even if, in my opinion, even if, in my opinion, um, season four was definitely where it started to trail off in quality and makes actually a good ending point for the whole thing. Um, I really think that it started off on a high note, and while it never really declined all that much, um, I won't go so far as to say that it ever necessarily got better than the first season. So I talked a little bit about um, they were very brave with how they did this, and not every if you go to the Wikipedia page and look at the list of Batman the animated series episodes, it tells you who the focus is in terms of um, like the villain in the show. Um, you know, it's broken up into title, villain, director, writer, and air date. And um, because I, I bought this off of uh, iTunes, it's, I watched it. It's not in air date order, unfortunately. It's in the order that they decided to put the, um, the DVD in, which was bizarre to me. But um, I wanna, I, actually, I want to talk about POV first. It's episode 7. It aired September 18, 1992. And if I have to pick out, you know, if I'm on an awards committee um, and I have to pick out one single episode that it just strikes me as being the most unique and different and really enjoyable episode of the whole first uh, season, it's this one. This one dared to be so different that it, that it took a single incident in the lives of the Gotham police, and in this case, Detective Bullock and Montoya, who you may remember from the various movies and such. And there's a, a, a sequence of events, and the whole episode is... Batman's barely even in it. He's, he's there. He's a part of the sequence of events. But essentially, they, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what happened in this warehouse... And it's looking like, I think it's uh, Bullock, who, um, you know, who did something, uh, who, who did something bad. Sorry, I don't remember the, all the details, but, um, the, yeah, the, there's a, there's a screw-ups that happen, essentially. Um, you know, I'll, just, I'll read from the description. A botched police operation results in the suspension of those involved, Officer Wilkes, Officer Montoya, and Detective Harvey Bullock. Confronted by their superiors, each of them is forced to tell their tale of what happened that night. So you get these three different versions of the same story in a 22-minute cartoon. That's the plot of a movie, folks. That's the kind of thing that, that uh, you, you, know, you get with, uh, with major motion pictures, and they crammed that into a 22-minute kid's cartoon. And it was brilliant. It, it, it really did stand out to me as one of the, as one of the most as a very rare commodity in the animated world. Um, well, what did you think of it, Sean? You know, to be honest, if I would just kind of rip off the top of my head about this a little bit, my opinion of this is that it has a lot of the same qualities that, for Doctor Who fans out there, also makes a lot of Doctor Light episodes very good. Uh, 
for those of you who aren't really familiar with that concept, it goes a little something like this. During David Tennant's tenure as the 10th Doctor, they were looking for a way to be able to pad out the production schedule while still giving him some time away from the set, a little bit of a breather, but still keeping things on track, still churning out episodes at an appreciable pace. So they came up with this idea that every so often they would do Doctor Who episodes that really hardly featured the Doctor at all. Sometimes it worked remarkably well. Um, for my veter- my fellow veterans of the new series out there, inarguably, Turn Left is one of the most unsettlingly dark, high-water marks of the entire Russell P. Davies era of the show, or maybe of the series in general, because it maintained a focus on the Doctor's impact on the people around him, and his presence was still felt in every scene, still felt in every moment, because it was about him while still telling a very grim, unsettling kind of Elseworld type of story of what would have happened if Donna Noble would have made just one, one decision differently, and as a result, the Doctor had died. And it revisits how various other events throughout the Doctor's tenure up to that point would have, would have panned out instead and how it would have all snowballed into a massive galactic catastrophe. Then again, on the other hand, you also get an episode like Love and Fucking Monsters, in which it starts out as people talking about the Doctor and being fascinated by the Doctor, but inevitably just devolves into Moaning Myrtle from the Harry Potter movies leading an Electric Light Orchestra cover band. (laughs) No, I'm not goddamn kidding, nor am I goddamn kidding about the fact that she turns into a blowjob-dispensing slab of concrete. No, seriously, look it up. Go watch this episode. That's the difference between these two. This episode, okay, This is Turn Left. This is an episode about, that is about Batman and about his role in in events that's told by people from the outside. And also it makes some use of one of the more underappreciated Batman characters, and that's Harvey Bullock, who didn't originate with the series. He actually first appeared in Detective Comics number 441 in June 1974. It's just that this is arguably what a lot of people are going to remember him for. They're not even necessarily going to they're not going to remember him necessarily for anything prior to Christ's on Infinite Earths. Since this time, he's kind of become almost as as central and kind of important a figure in a lot in a lot of stories as Commissioner Gordon has, because he's sort of that that just slightly off-center opposite. Uh, he has no faith whatsoever in Batman, doesn't trust him. As we well, he resents in, Batman. I think, I think well, it's important to say it that way. He, he resents Batman um, because 
in his eyes, Batman makes the Gotham police force seem almost uh, irrelevant. And, well, uh, and, and but, but there's also the fact that as the, well, depending on how canon you consider this, that as Batman Arkham Origins acknowledges, um, he's also very much just another crooked Gotham cop, but he's one who has a bit of a line in that he won't let his corruption lead to harm coming to civilians. Right. Yeah, we talked a little bit last night about, and I'm not going to go into the, uh, I keep saying last night. We talked a little bit on the Whiskey Rebellion about, um, you know, blacks and whites in this country and uh, Martin Luther King. Listen to the podcast if you want to know what the context is. But I, you know, but the line that I'm, I'm, I'm referencing is uh, how people will react when their world is turned upside down and is uh, ostensibly threatened. You know, while Harvey Bullock was was crooked, he w- he was comfortable in in this universe as he was. And with Batman, his entire lifestyle was threatened, and that I, that leads to a lot of the resentment. Um, you know, Batman ha- Batman has to make him better than he really than than uh, than he is, and he doesn't like it. You know, he likes being what he was. And you know that's that's fine because a big Part of the whole Batman mythos is speculating throughout various arts and various events on sometimes just even just for a moment asking yourself, has his impact on Gotham been entirely positive? I mean, in a way, that's, that, that's kind of that's kind of the Joker's favorite fractured bone to target in particular. Is, yeah, let's, let's all hang on. Is asking, were, were there people like me before there was someone like you? Have you ever stopped to wonder if, may, if maybe you're actually the root cause of all this? Right, and that's, of course, one of the major themes of the movie, The Dark Knight. And that, that's actually a good thing to explore for just a moment, is, is that you know, one of the things that, one of the themes of the Batman mythos is, um, you know, Gotham was, if we can talk about this for a second, because the cartoon does delve into this a bit. Um, Gotham was a city that was pretty much taken over by gang, by uh, gang bosses, warlords. Um, and the corruption was so, was so bad that it infiltrated the Gotham police force. So the whole city had turned into pretty much the uh, alternate future from the, the alternate, uh, Pleasant Valley, whatever it's called, from Back to the Future. Everything is just corrupted, um, and there, there was no place to turn. That's, that's what gives rise to Batman, is this need to be above the law and above the bosses and to not only beat down the crooks and the, and the gang bosses, but to beat down the cops as well. It was you know, to give the few good citizens of Gotham uh, a weapon to fight back with. And in doing so... Um, just to sort of quote the uh, the Dark Knight, um, specifically Alfred, you, you beat the crooks back so badly that they had no place else to turn but to a madman who only wanted to see the world burn. Paraphrasing. And the cartoon does a really good job of capturing that at times. Uh, you know, this idea that Batman has possibly... I mean, if you think about it... Um, depending on which origin story you go with, Batman's responsible for creating the Joker, 
you know, knocking the red hood into, uh, into radioactive goo that created the Ninja Turtles, I think. Um, he's to a degree responsible for the creation of uh, Two-Face and Harvey Dent. Um, I think... I think in the cartoon, he's on one level or another responsible for the creation of Clayface. So, you know, uh, you have a situation. Uh, that one's not, a bit of a reach. With Clayface, I think not, it was a bit of a, a, bit of a reach, but. Uh, it's, but it's a bit of a reach in that he wasn't responsible for that at all. <laughs> no, it makes my point if I say he does, damn it. <laughs> Be with me on this. No. Um, no, I, but uh, we'll give you. I will kind of give you uh, Harvey Dent in that although the stories are actually completely different, Mm -hmm. um, in both uh, the fantastic uh, Long Halloween trilogy by, you know, written by Jeff Loeb, drawn by Tim Sale, and in the animated series season one, two-parter Two-Face, it ends with Batman slash Bruce Wayne um, coming to mourn the birth of Two-Face as being, in a sense, one of his failures. The the only difference being in that whereas it really, Batman ultimately ends up more haunted in the Long Halloween trilogy, uh, and, by the way, for those of you who want to be pedantic and nitpick, yes, I'm referring to it because I'm counting Catwoman when in Rome amongst it. Um, in the animated series, at the end of that two-parter, he's not so much... He's still grieving, but at the same time, it's, it's gradually being overcome by a resolve to find a way to help Harvey and right. to find a way to, to reform it. Um, so, what, that's one of the things I really like about the animated series is that they is that they really embraced a lot of the, the mythos and the things that make Batman Batman. And we we talked about this when we when we had uh, Samer on for the uh, our two part look at the first series of Batman movies. You know, the first two Tim Burton ones and the Joel Schumacher disasters. Um, and and that. Batman's more than a guy with fancy gizmo. He's not Iron Man. You know, he's more than a guy running around in tights in a fancy suit, you know, throwing ninja stars at people. He's a detective. He's a, he's a, um, a, a man who's haunted by tragedies that he's a victim of and that he was a big part in and may have been a cause of. Um, he's a very conflicted individual one of the failures of the nolan dark knight trilogy was um they didn't and we'll talk about this when we eventually do talk about that trilogy but nolan sort of reduced batman to uh someone someone out of his death and just punching at things at times where that's not batman you know the the whole thing about you know, the League of Shadows being a ninja was Batman waiting in the shadows, watching, um, waiting for the right time to strike. And because he's a mortal man, you know, using the shadows to uh, to disarm people and uh, you know and, and fight crime that way. 
because he couldn't well, just, you know, he, he couldn't just jump out in the middle of things, you know, and, and uh, you know, kind of the way Captain America does and just start tackling people left and right. Uh, well, now, now, wait a sec. Let's, let's be a little bit more fair to the Nolan series, though. What he did was he took the, the time, the period in Bruce Wayne's life that syncs up roughly with right around, um, if we're to go by the comics, about year one, year two. Because, mm-hmm. because let's face it, Batman Begins in particular is a loose adaptation of Frank Miller's Batman Year One. Right. Um, we, we might as well not even at some point even call it a loose adaptation as just calling it just an, an out-and-out, unabashed, loving adaptation of it. Um, he then manages to take that timeline and find in the next movie an effective way to work in more or less the story of the long Halloween and the genesis of Two-Face and just kind of of transplants it from that more experienced time in Batman's life as, as Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale envisioned it into something that's a little less removed from the events of year one. And then finally in uh, The Dark Knight Rises, we managed to get uh, a combination of the spirit of The Dark Knight Returns with the characters and events of Nightfall, and at the end, sort of a climax that's more or less akin to, I would say, uh, uh, Savage Land. Um, and just manages to take all those stories and just work them into roughly about the same time frame. Uh, whereas on the other hand, with the, with the animated series, it's we see pretty much right off the bat that it's <laughs> right off the bat. <laughs> I see what I did there. <laughs> we, we see right from the get-go that we're clearly dealing with an experienced seasoned Batman with whom the underworld of Gotham is already well and frightfully familiar. So I don't think it's really fair to necessarily compare the two as they're being approached in two completely different ways. As I said at the start of the show, this, not too many Batman, too many Batman properties or Batman um, adaptations have approached the Cape Crusader quite this way no one had done it that way before, and no one has really done it quite this way since. Well, I think what I was trying to get at was I much prefer this. One of the reasons why I, I wanted to talk about this series was this is probably my preferred uh, conceptualized Batman. I mean, we'll see what happens with, with Dawn of Justice, but um, I, like, I like a more thoughtful, more detective Batman than I do a guy seemingly trying to punch through his frustrations. And we can debate the fairness of that statement at a later date. But my, you know, my point is kind of getting back to some of these episodes. Um, it's a, it's the way that it's animated, and, and for lack of a better word, the way that it's shot, is you get to see Batman doing all those things I just talked about, waiting in the shadows. There are quiet moments of the cartoon. You know, many cartoons, it's just a lot of noise, 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 noise. These are noisy shows, and they're noisy shows because boys like noisy. Um, you know, children like noisy. That's why, you know, the toys that make the noise. 
but this was a very quiet show. Yeah, there was explosions at times, and it was bombastic uh, here and there, but there were also very t- times where it was very, very quiet, and you got to see you know, your main protagonist actually work through things and figure things out and actually be a sleuth. You know, Batman is, is DC Comics' greatest detective for a reason, and that is how he was portrayed in this, um, in this series. Uh, you know I want to talk about... Go ahead. I think, I think it really bears noting, in terms of everything you just mentioned, that, and it's really a tribute to what a visionary Paul Dini really is, that in crafting, and of course, obviously, he had an instrumental hand in crafting the first two games so far, in the um, Batman Arkham Saga. Uh, He, of course, co-wrote both Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City. And both of those games, despite taking a different, much more often forceful approach to Batman, he also managed to keep a lot of those same qualities present as well. Uh, As much as sometimes... Batman can be angrier, as you put it, a lot more willing to punch his way through things. It, it, it also maintains him as, as this stealthy predator of the shadows and also right. being, being a brilliant detective, but manages to do it within the scope of, in those games, what is a much more graphic, dark, harsh, oftentimes deadly story, especially if you're going by Arkham Asylum. And, you know, if you don't mind a little bit of a seg here, I think you have to attribute a lot of that to the fact that where he seems to go with his take on the character, he brings a number of the same voice towns with him. Most notably, Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. I mean, we, we, we have to talk about that because at this point, I would dare venture, I can definitely say this for myself, and I would, I would be so bold as to tell a lot of people out there. Damn it. Oh, hey, everybody. Mark's got pee, and he's telling me to keep going. Anyway. Oh, I'm so, oh, Alexis, I'm so tempted to add you to the show right now. That's my ex, folks, trying to call me. My show's on. Anyway, as I was saying, you have to chalk a lot of that success in Dini being able to transition from one medium to the next to the fact that you can say what you will about Michael Keaton or Val Kilmer or George Clooney or Christian Bale or God bless you if you're old and set enough in your ways, Adam West. Um, I would dare say that nowadays, whenever you read Batman dialogue in a comic, or whenever you look at a picture of Batman, Kevin Conroy is the voice that you're hearing in your head with every single line. I know that I can definitely say that as way back when I was reading Hush the first time. It, it really made for a full immersive experience to have him there as really my iconic quintessential voice of Batman. And likewise, you've got Mark Hamill here in the animated series creating 
a character that I would dare say has eclipsed even his role as Luke Skywalker in terms of the career work in really fleshing out a character that that fans have appreciated the most. Oh, because I think most people now associate Mark Hamill with the quintessential Joker. You know, in terms oh, of Joker storylines, people come up with the killing joke and the man who laughs and all of that. But when people think about um, portrayals, you know, it was Heath Ledger, I think, who drew from Mark Hamill's Joker. And when people think about, and now when people think about the Joker, they think Heath Ledger. But prior, but what? But who gave birth to Heath Ledger? But Mark Hamill's Joker. Well, and the and the fact is, and again, this is all you need to really do to compare it. Is go to watch the bulk of his work on the animated series, and I would also throw in in Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Go watch those in particular. After you've watched those, especially if you're if you're a gamer, go ahead and play go ahead and play them. If you're not a gamer, at least go and YouTube a let's play of Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City. He's able to take a character that he was able to keep bright and entertaining and intriguing in the animated series and just go to a much more dark, malevolent place with with the Arkham games and never have it feel really like he was creating a whole new Joker. I mean, it really felt like it could have very well like it could have very well been a decade on the very same Joker from the animated series just pushed to the absolute limit by this ongoing war of attrition with Batman. Uh he even manages to work in he and Dini, I should say, successfully, um, a number of references to a death in, to a death in the family, to the killing joke, to to all kinds of historic Batman story, Batman storylines, and God love him, Troy Baker did a fantastic job in Batman Arkham Origins as as a much younger Joker. He managed to to conjure a virgin a virgin a version that really does sound like it could have been a a much fresher, just getting his feet wet, uh, clown prince of crime. But it's it's never he is never going to manage to to reach the the true heights of the character that Hamill has. Because again, it's in that it is in that one question is when you're reading a comic when you're reading a Batman story, what's the voice that you really hear in your head as you're reading as you're reading the dialogue? You know, the way that if you're if, if you're a Harry if you're a Harry Potter fan who started with the movie and then went to the books, the way that you know you hear the line readings as you know Rupert Grant and Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and Alan Rickman and so on and so forth. It's just Ask yourself that, and then, and then go and try to seriously consider anybody else as really being the quintessential, definitive act of anybody else who's ever played it, or Joker for that matter. Um, I want to talk about another episode 
Uh, it actually follows POV. Uh, it's another example of them kind of taking a different tack with this series, and not everything has to be one of the Batman's rogues galleries. They can kind of play with some other ideas and some other stories, and it isn't, you know, it, it isn't sort of the example of the Adam West show where every week it was the same formula. They really experimented with a lot of different ideas. This one's called The Forgotten, and the, the, the boss is Boss Biggest, um, or as my, uh, my mother-in-law calls my son, Boss Hog. And, uh, and that's kind of what he, <laughs> and that's kind of what we're going for with this guy. Um, and the description reads, while investigating the disappearances of Gotham's homeless, in an undercover disguise, Bruce Wayne is kidnapped and imprisoned in a chain game mining camp, suffering from amnesia. Alfred, Alfred must track him down, help him escape, and free the rest of the prisoners. And, you know, 90%, 90, 95% of the episode, he's Bruce Wayne, or, you know, or he's got amnesia, and he's, you know, trapped in this uh, mining camp, uh, and he's got to, you know, slowly, slowly figure out what, you know, what's going on and, and uh, where he is and how he's going to get out. And it's and it's a Batman episode without with again without necessarily featuring Batman, and it's one of my favorites. Um, it was an interesting story. It was a fun story. I mean, you know, it's all of these are going to be you know compartmentalized. You know, they're twenty two minute shorts here essentially, but you know, for a twenty two minute short, I thought they managed to jam a lot in there, and it was um, it was a very interesting episode to me. I, I would love to have had this to have been able to do this episode with maybe like a panel of. Uh, kids, just to kind of see what they think, because I'm a 38 year old man, and I and I and I appreciate this. I would love to know what children thought of it, especially at the time that it aired, way back in um, 1992. You know, it's sort of funny you mention that because not too long ago, I forget who it was who ended up bringing this to my Facebook feed, but somebody reposted a short webcomic that somebody did based on a story uh, that was told by one of the people who worked alongside Dini on uh, the Green Lantern animated series. And it goes a little something like this. Uh, they were getting ready to head into a focus group to show them uh, an episode of Green Lantern and kind of get their feedback on it and sort of tailor their strategy for marketing and producing the show accordingly. And what happened was really was really interesting because, and we'll probably discuss this a little more in depth when we actually get, get a few months down the line to talking about Green Lantern, was the fact that Oddly, a lot of the girls who watched the show were very intrigued by the character development. And not just the the romantic backstory of a couple of the characters that was focused on, but on the characters' motivations, on them as people. But they also enjoyed the action of it, too. They felt like there was a really good balance of the two. And on the other hand... A lot, of, a lot of the guys seem kind of, you know, too cool for it and indifferent, not really wanting to kind of gush over it too, over it too much. Um, but the ones who really responded to it positively also had a lot of questions about it, a lot of questions about where they were going with the characters, wanting to know more about them, wanting to know more about the dynamic between them. And it should be noted that Paul Dini had opted 
not to sit in on it. He really wanted nothing to do with Washington whatsoever. And in the end, the network really was not pleased with the feedback because despite the fact that a lot of people really seemed very into the story and wanted to learn more about the characters, the network took that as meaning that they were bored and confused and that they really didn't care what was going on. And basically threatened them, look, either change, either change everything about the series to, wipe, to nip this in the bud or... The series is done. We're canceling. And later, this co-creator just felt like he'd been run through the mill, had this conversation with Deanie in which Deanie noted that the whole reason he doesn't do focus groups is because that's exactly what they told him when they were running, when they were running testing for Batman the Animated Series. And his response to it in turn was, we didn't change a single thing. And to this day, I still have people that come up to me and thank me, thank me, and tell me what a huge part this show was of their childhood and how many happy memories of growing up it holds for them. And, of course, what ultimately ended up happening was Green Lantern did end up being canceled after a single season. However, uh, it has since sold fantastically well on DVD and Blu-ray, which means it did its job, it built a fan base, it's just that you can't necessarily gauge a show's success entirely on ratings or even necessarily what a network thinks of it. I mean, come on, folks, let's, let's keep in mind that for every Big Bang Theory that manages to seemingly garner praise absolutely across the board, there's a show like Community that seems to fight for every half-seat can need to fight for every half season that it gets, and yet consistently receives critical and audience com- audience acclaim, just cost absolutely without fail. And and so it is with this show where you have somebody like Dini who was daring to really be different with the character. He gives you an entire episode in which you're focusing on. Bruce Wayne having to do the same job without being Batman. It's kind of display that it's not really necessarily about the gadgets and the costumes. That what makes him Batman never really goes goes away when he changes clothes at the end of the day. So, and it's it's a chance that you wouldn't see a lot of shows nowadays necessarily be that willing to take. Yeah, um, I think that's why I keep drawing attention to um, to these particular uh, episodes. Because, look, I mean, if you, if you go through the list here, um, they've got Man Bat, Joker, the Scarecrow, uh, Joker again, Poison Ivy. You get one of the lesser-known ones, the Sewer King. Um, you know, the Joker again. And you have the, two-face, the Origin of Two-Face episodes, which is a two-parter. Um, not a lot of the Penguins. I only remember him in maybe one or two. You get the, uh, and, uh, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, Deanie has really gotten the Penguin right once, and it was not during the animated series. Uh, again, it was in the games. Uh, it well, wasn't when it, it wasn't when Penguin was written as uh, as a hoity-toity little little pudgy, overly verbose man. 
Uh, it was when the Penguin was a foul-mouthed, cocky, ruthless arms dealer. And in Arkham City, a foul-mouthed, cocky, ruthless arms dealer that had the bottom of a fucking bottle impaled over his eye. Um, that was really when the Penguin was most interesting. In the animated series, Penguin episodes tend to be the filler at best. Now, on the other hand, I would contest you a little bit on being so dismissive of especially the first episode with Scarecrow. Um, I thought that was really an excellent way to not only introduce one of the better Batman rogues, if one of the more underestimated ones, but also to really delve in to you know, all of a sudden Bruce being unavoidable, even if it's only via Scarecrow's fear toxin, to avoid the conflict that he has about really how the loved ones that he's lost would feel about his ongoing campaign. I, I want to... Um, we, we have about an hour left of the show, and uh, I want to make sure that we get into some plenty of time about Harley Quinn, but since we've now mentioned it a few times... We spent the better part of an hour kind of going over the ones that didn't focus on major bad guys. Um, so let, let, let's spend the next hour kind of talking about some of these ones that did. And, you know, the Penguin, as you just said, was sort of a minor character in the first 28 episodes. He's only got one episode, and it was just kind of there. Um, it was, I mean, it was fine. But um, in Volume 1, we've got episodes 1 through 28, and we've got multiple appearances from the Scarecrow, the Joker... Let's focus right now on the two-parter that gives rise to Two-Face. No, it's one of your favorites. Uh, we'll talk about that for a little bit. Um, now, this one's interesting because this starts off with uh, Harvey Dent already having a, uh, a split personality and a, um, this wholly derived other personality is Big Bad Harv. And what ends up, and then what ends up happening is when he uh, when he is scarred, uh, so the big bad horror personality sort of takes over. Um, you, you're very familiar. You're very much entrenched in the, the sort of the history of Two Face in the comic books and in the video games and the Long Halloween. How did this rate to you? Where where would you put in? What what about it did you like? You know what. Quite frankly, if you're going to do a Two-Face origin story other than the long Halloween art that has become kind of the quintessentially accepted genesis of the character, I think this is perfect, perfectly acceptable. It's maybe still not my favorite, but on the other hand, the long Halloween, if you really look how it plays out, would be exceptionally dark to try to adapt for syndicated kids' television. So, if you're talking about Harvey Dent in a way still kind of maintaining that that persona of Gotham's white knight, of the of the defender of justice that can do that can do and be everything that Batman can't do or be, then and then you know kind of has everything. As kind of a, a rough early upbringing kind of brought to the surface again after years spent trying to suppress it, I think that's pretty grounded and that's pretty acceptable. 
Um, also, the character is voiced extremely well. We get the tragedy of the fact that he has a loving relationship that immediately falls apart as he has to cope with being tragically and horrifically scarred. And we still have to deal with Batman feeling a strong measure of guilt and a sense of maybe responsibility for what happened. So, I mean, this is one of the more one of the more human elements of the show, and one of the ones wherein you have a villain who's really given the measure of humanity. And along the same lines, other than Two Face. Obviously, Two-Face, I think, would be the silver medal, actually, in that category, with the obvious gold winner being uh, Heart of Ice, which is a legendary arc. It's the one that I alluded to at the top of the show, in that it took a character that for decades been really not that much more than an ancillary villain, Mr. Freeze, was even very much a joke but on the classic CBS, uh, really campy Adam West and Burt Ward series, and gave him a tragic, horrible backstory of a man who was working in secret to try to find a cure for his dying wife and ended up being found out and rather ruthlessly cut off by another man. And that that arc was so was so impactful and was such a fresh take on the character that DC could ignore the fact that audiences looked at that and went, okay, here's a case where I still I may still not improve, not approve of what the character is doing but damn if I don't actually kind of understand and sympathize with why he's doing it. it. It's still against the law. It's still horrible. It's still hurting other people. But nevertheless, I still feel more than a little bit sorry for it. And that kind of became the, the standard canon backstory for Mr. Freeze that has permeated not only a lot of comics, but a lot of other adaptations as well, uh, including, the most, including the most recent video games. In fact, there's, number one, a whole arc devoted to uh, helping Mr. Freeze find the kidnapped and hidden body of his wife in Batman Arkham City. But in Arkham Origins, uh, PC, Xbox, and PlayStation owners also got the deal, got the DLC Cold Cold Heart, which is very, is very much a, a retelling and and an adaptation of that arc from the animated series. And again, it comes back to just nothing more than Deep and Dean refusing to to shy away from his vision and sticking with it, and it turning out that what he envisioned for the franchise and for its characters was in many ways leaps and bounds ahead of what anybody in years had come up with. 
for the character. It's one of those things that kind of deserves to rank alongside uh, Frank Miller's Batman Year One being the accepted origin story for Bat- for Batman. Or, as I said, The Long Halloween being the widely accepted standard genesis of Two-Face. Um, yeah, I, uh, the, the, according to this, it actually won the um, Heart of Ice episode, won a Daytime Emmy Award, and uh, it's, 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 very, it's very tragic. It's, it's heavy stuff for kids, but, uh, but that's one of the things I like about it. Um, one of the ones that's heavily featured in this is um, Scarecrow. He's in the, uh, the third episode, and then he shows up again. Um, where are you? Uh, he shows up again in 24 um, and then again in 28 uh, it's, and uh, I like what they did with this especially um, at one of the later episodes with, uh, with Scarecrow uh, in this you know, in the movie in, in uh, the, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy you know, he's a psychologist and he's working with the mob and all of that um, in this one He's a what was he a professor, a uh, scientist or something? And he but he had fallen on. Go ahead and just jump in here. I know it, it, it's essentially he's. Uh, I so think he, he was working. He's a Gotham University professor of psychology, who right. uh, his fear experiments were found out, and he was cast out of the university. And right, so the, the whole scarecrow thing is is his revenge plot. Well, yeah, and again, we're talking about characters here who almost almost universally across the board, with a very few exceptions, have got actual motivations that are more clear than simply, I want to rule the world or I want to rule Gotham. In this, in Scarecrow's case, in Scarecrow's case, I should say, it, yeah, somewhat about the material game, but by and large, it's just about revenge for him. Uh, he wants to bring down the people who brought him down. Uh, granted, we also see that you know he was a mischievous, sadistic little shit from the time he was a kid, but it gives him something that really set him off. And, and actually, I love the way he was performed. I love the way he was written. The only thing I really wasn't crazy about is I've been designed better. Uh, my uh, my personal favorite is always going to probably be either Tim Sale's version with the ridiculously exaggerated hat or the creepy as almost Freddy Krueger-esque uh, version from the Arkham games. But in this one, you know, you you got to keep it a little bit safe to keep it so we couldn't make him too intimidating. <laughs> All right. Um, so the Joker comes up uh, three different times. He's in the second one, um, which was a, it's a funny episode, actually, uh, Christmas with the Joker. Um, he's in the fourth one again. Uh, however, the real star of this next part of our conversation, Harley Quinn, doesn't actually show up until – she's only in one episode of Volume 1 – September 11th, 1992, Joker's Favor. This was an interesting episode because Harley Quinn pretty much comes out of nowhere. She's just there. Um, 
she, you know, she's a squeaky voice, a sycophant attached to the Joker. But the but she, the, the episode really isn't about her. She's just sort of there doing Joker's dirty work. The, the, the episode is actually about an accountant who uh, <laughs> was a really bad day. And uh, the Joker ends up kind of like blackmailing him into doing dirty work for him. And, you know, and it's about trying to get out from under the Joker. Um, but that's, that, that, that's our first glimpse at Harley Quinn. So let me divide this up into two parts. First, uh, the three episodes that the Joker is in in this whole first season, uh, we talked a little bit about that with Mark Hamill's portrayal. I mean, everybody loves the portrayal of the Joker, but how do you feel uh, the Joker was used in these three episodes? Because um, they, they, they definitely make him – this was definitely I just want to watch the world burn kind of a Joker. He doesn't mm-hmm. – he's um, – I don't want to go as far as saying man crazy has no plan because he's got a plan, but he's got a plan basically just to fuck with Gotham and Batman. There doesn't seem to be a bigger agenda at play. Not like some of, not like some of these other characters who are motivated by either revenge or money, or they want to take over Wayne enterprises, you know, or something to that, something to that effect. It's literally like, uh, I've got a plan. I'm going to blow this up, but only but it's going to turn blue first. And I want to see what happens. And you know, it, it's Joker, sort of like a toddler, and Gotham is his toy that he's messing around with. It's it, it, it not so much in this case. Man crazy has no plan. It's Joker crazy has no goal. Yeah, <laughs> Joker crazy has no main objective. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's really about all there is to it. And you know, that's perfectly acceptable for this. It's and also he's able to switch gears so easily, so so easily between being just lighthearted enough to really fit the character to really be just a little bit silver agey, and then to kind of turn up the turn up the anger and the malevolence and the sadism just a little bit, just enough to kind of kind of remain acceptable for Fox Kids audience. Now, Harley, on the other hand, the interesting thing we find out about her is really there's just kind of just kind of a good girl gone bad thing going on. Um, sure. As we find out... Right, but we're not going to find that out until later on. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, kind, of, I'll kind of save a lot of that origin, origin talk. But, and even then, that's another one where it's noticeable that the character is absolutely made by the actress. And all you need, and Arlene Sorkin, God bless her, just kind of brings just enough sort of um, New Jersey Jew to the accent. <laughs> How you doing, Mr. J? Exactly, exactly. And not so that... I mean, a lot of people wouldn't probably take notice when somebody, when a character is swapped out voice-wise for a reasonable facsimile. God damn it. When Arlene Sorkin didn't do Arkham City and instead they subbed in the wonderful and extremely, infinitely talented Tara Strong, oh, people took notice. (laughs) I mean... They, they weren't going. They weren't exactly going after Miss Twilight Sparkle herself with torches and pitchforks, but they could tell. They could tell that it, that it wasn't Arlene. It was close, but 
not quite enough that he was going to convince anybody that it was that it was Arlene Sorkin. And and again, Andrea Romano picked voice actors for these roles uh, who brought so much light to almost all of them that it never really sounds it never really sounds like a performance in an animated series. It's it's just real enough that it feels like you could close your eyes during an episode and between the between the soaring and brute the combination of the the peaks and valleys of the soaring and brooding scores and the humanity of the voice performances, so many of them, from Batman to Alfred to Bullock to Gordon to Poison Ivy, Ivy to Penguin to Two-Face, right up to the Joker. It's like listening to the most fantastic radio play you will ever experience. Because the voices can just tell you so much without you ever having to see what's going on on screen. And Harley is just so infinitely entertaining in that way and was so instantly well-received that she earned herself a golden ticket from originating in an animated series right into the DC pantheon. And so let me ask you, do, you, do you know what the history of Harley Quinn is in as far as because like I said, this first season, now let's assume it didn't get renewed for a second season. We never learned her origin. You know, all we know is that in um, episode 20-something, she just sort of shows up out of nowhere, does her thing, and we never hear of her again. Do you know, based on, what I'm, based on just that, what, the, what her purpose was, what, some, what the writers and uh, producers of the show were, were, where they were going with this, and why they thought the Joker needed a, uh, a sidekick? Just based on the first season? Yeah. Oh, fuck no. No, no idea. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. Just, no. just curious. You, no. I didn't know if there was a story behind this or anything. Well, well, no. And she really does have kind of an interesting story. And it's one that... Um, and actually, I think the brief retelling of it that we sort of got was one of... Far away. I don't know if you played it for the, for the Wii U or not, but what I thought was one of the highest points of Arkham Origins... And one of the moments that really kind of made me just put my controller down and sit forward and just kind of watch the whole thing intently. But that being said, I mean, she, she, was, she was so colorful and so fun that she got this path, this pass kind of right into the mainstream DC continuity. And she's since gotten uh, her own her own book. Uh, even got her own kind of pivotal, almost got him uh, story in the books, where she almost actually manages to really get the better of Batman. Uh, unfortunately, I would dare say that sometimes DC really has a tendency to kind of overplay their hand with her and kind of try to make her more than she was ever meant to be. Uh, to the point that well, as Robert, I, if Robert Winfrey were here, he would be talk. He would be uh, talking about the uh, profitability pig hostage. Oh, I, I'm sure he would be because the the fact is, at this point, she is to DC what Wolverine and Deadpool kind of are kind of are at Marvel, in that 
she's horribly overexposed. Um, and, you, you know, as I've, as I've joked several times, it's, it's the equivalent to if WWE once the, one day just decided that come hell or high water, damn it, they were going to make a long-reigning world champion out of Zack Ryder. <laughs> but that they weren't necessarily going to do it with any kind of real serious attempt to build him believable. Yeah, so we will definitely talk more about Harley Quinn um, as, this, as the seasons progress because she shows up a lot more uh, later on. But, you know, like I said, she was only in one episode in the first volume. And um, i tell you what my, my first impressions of her, because I kind of – I watched this and I kind of forgot that she ever existed. And, I, and uh, it's, it's an interesting because, because there's a devotion to the Joker that's, that just doesn't seem warranted. You know, he uh, – it's actually often been noted that there's, a, that there's an abusive relationship going on between Joker and Harley. I mean, um, you know, Joker leaving her on the side of the road, Joker sort of using her as a human shield. I think Joker whacks her once or twice. And oh, that's yeah. pretty heavy duty. You know, we, oh. let, let, us, let, us talk, let us call a spade a spade. On a cartoon meant for children, we have a man hitting a woman. You know, in an abusive way. This isn't like Catwoman and Batman having what seems to be an even fight. This is like the Joker whacks her one, and she just kind of shies away from him like, oh, I didn't mean to burn the meatloaf. And well, and you know, what, are you, the, what are you supposed so, to do with that? In a sense, though, it gave way at one point to uh, to a very, I think it was even just kind of a one-off story or maybe maybe just one they revisited occasionally of a partnership between Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn that was kind of founded on Ivy at one point just finally asking her, why did you put up with this? Why do you keep going back for more? Um, and you know, it's kind of not until you get older that you look back on that and you realize this is one of the earliest times I remember a show from when I was a kid dealing with dealing more or less with spousal abuse. Um, but I mean, the yeah. short and easy answer is that Joker's a sociopath, and sociopaths are really, really good at you know keeping people attracted to them that should have run and run for the hills a long time ago. But again, pretty heavy duty for children. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, um, another interesting sort of relationship thing that uh, comes up in this show, and it's, it's, I know we're, we're jumping around a lot, um, and, this, and this isn't necessarily a comparison to the Dark Knight trilogy, but it's, it's, I, I kind of have to because I, I've watched it enough times recently that's a relationship that kind of over the course of three movies just completely falls apart. And it's a little bit different than anything I've ever seen in Batman. Um, this was a more traditional relationship between Alfred and, and Batman, you know, Alfred sort of, you know, loyal to him to the end, um, supportive, but in a distant way, you know, like you can see Alfred doesn't, you can see Alfred's skepticism with the whole Batman agenda in the cartoon, but he isn't as 
uh, confrontational as the Alfred character from the Dark Knight trilogy. And I, I bring that up because, again, having seen both recently, it was kind of nice to see Alfred just sort of playing that role again uh, because I have found that I don't necessarily like Alfred to be confrontational, you know, and constantly questioning Bruce Wayne and um, antagonizing him in a lot of ways. Um, I'm okay with sort of the subtle rolling of the eyes. You know, he's sitting there with chicken soup and says something, you know, and does that, and Bruce says, oh, you're a genius. How did you figure that out? And he's just still standing there with the fucking chicken soup in his hands. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, and, the, and the other side of that is in the cartoon, Bruce never seems to take him for granted, whereas Bruce Wayne in the Dark Knight trilogy, I really felt like the way the character was written he almost finds Alfred to be a nuisance um, and a distraction and a, a and an albatross. And it's like, you know, I don't like that relationship. I like much more the way that Alfred is portrayed in Batman the Animated Series. So, so let me ask you, have, have you played any of the Arkham games? Any of them? No, I have not. Okay. Um, I was going to say, you really would not, just kind of a sidetrack, you really would not like the dynamic, I think, in uh, in Origins. Because it's, it's obviously a much younger, much more inexperienced Bruce Wayne that's still kind of finding his legs within the role. And throughout the game, and especially at one climactic point near the end of it, Alfred is constantly worrying, constantly trying to tell him that he thinks that he's really out of his depth and that he's going to get himself or someone else hurt and that he needs to that he needs to ask for some help. He needs to go to the police and kind of work kind of work with them as opposed to just trying to, to be this one man army. But I really don't I really don't mind Alfred in the series. He kind of it's maybe not my favorite role in that I kind of like it when Alfred is a little bit more of an active part of the Bat family. At the same time, I'm hard-pressed to really fault it either because he plays the role so well. <laughs> and, and in fact, I, I do believe, I know, the, I know the actor who played Commissioner Gordon uh, passed away fairly recently. But I do believe also that the voice performer who played Alfred is also no longer with us. So while we're on the subject, um, Gary Oldman's Commissioner Gordon seemed dazed and confused throughout the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, Commissioner Gordon, uh, I don't quite remember how he was portrayed in the comic books. Um, it just, you know, you would be more familiar with that than I am. He's kind of seemed kind of there. Um, this one, he doesn't quite seem as lost. Uh, he, you know, he's... He seems, um, you know, in terms of grizzled, been at this a while. Um, commission, the, the way they wrote the Commissioner Gordon character in the, in the series is, you know, he's got more of a handle on things in Gotham than uh, in other places I've seen him portrayed. Uh, he isn't as dependent on Batman. He just sort of recognizes that Batman is a good ally to have and uses him where appropriate. But he's not... He's almost, you know, in, in, I've seen him portrayed as almost, in some cases, almost a buffoon, you know, just completely out of his depth. And in this one, I feel like he's more, um, not on par with Batman, obviously, he's not running around throwing ninja stars at people, but 
I would say that he works really well in tandem with Batman. What do you uh, What do you think of the, the way they portrayed Commissioner Gordon? I think he was portrayed about as he should be. Um, I think that it's going to be really hard to address a lot of depth to the character from the comics without addressing a lot of those storylines. And the unfortunate thing is, a lot of those story arcs that really affected Gordon most would be exceptionally grim to be handled by a kid show because you would be talking about um, trying to work in the killing joke in which we go from Batgirl being a semi-regular character to being paralyzed by a shot, by a gunshot from the Joker just because she was the one who happened to answer the door. Um, You would have to address the fact that Gordon's career and his partnership with Batman arguably led to the downfall of his marriage to his first wife, Barbara, and led more or less directly to the death of his second wife, Sarah. So, I mean, how do you really deal with a lot of that stuff? And when you right. when you have a younger Gordon, like from from that, from year one or the long Halloween or, or any of those or year two or any of those other kind of early days storylines, you have a very idealistic by the books younger cop who's trying to stay that way amid a corrupt poison system. Um, and that's that's going to be approached a very different way from somebody who's been a part of the system and risen through the ranks at the point that Gordon in the animated series has. So, while I think Gordon in the animated series maybe isn't quite as interesting, I also don't think there's a way to make him more interesting necessarily without trying to find a way to work in those elements of the of the you know life of the life changing shooting of his daughter, his divorce, and the loss of his first wife. Although, hey, you know the new Fifty Two did undo Barbara Gordon's paralysis, so not like I put <laughs> so it past DC, DC and Warner Brothers to try. <laughs> Actually, I have a quick question about that. So, the new, I guess there's a Batwoman comic book now, or is it still Batgirl? Well, there's. There's Batwoman, and I know a little bit about the new 52, but quite frankly, what I what I both read and what I've heard has put me off it almost entirely. Um, not the least of which has been what has been explained to me as an edict that's been handed down from DC editorial that nobody in the Bat family is ever allowed to have a love life with a happy ending. Um. I would almost be interested in reading uh, a Batgirl comic book that had Barbara Gordon alive and well again and not paralyzed. But um, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, I want to switch gears here, because um, unless there's a character that you really wanted to get into, I want to talk about the uh, the look of the cartoon. So, well, you know, the, Batman... The, the, the only other character that I would really throw out there is the fact that it, it also much praise has to be given to what they did with Clayton. Um, yeah. They took him being once more a character 
that was not really necessarily thought highly of in the comics throughout their history prior to that run, at least not so much in that he was, I think, a major threat. But in this, he was given, they went with a rather sad backstory. It was kind of a combination of, of stories, actually, of, um, of True Clayface. It was kind of an amalgama- amalgamation of the Matt Hagen origin and the role, and the uh, 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 Basil Carlo origin, in which uh, Matt Hagen in the animated series is an actor who was tragically disfigured in a car accident and had pretty much and Hollywood pretty much lost all use for him until along comes uh, Ruthless cosmetics magnet uh, Roland Daggett with the Renew You Cream that uh, miraculously healed pretty much all of its scarring and is able to mold his face any way he any way he needs to. And what ultimately ends up happening is Matt ends up at the hands of Daggett uh, facing a malicious overdose of the product to the point that it fuses itself with his tissue, with his DNA, and makes him uh, basically just a big amorphous blob that eventually, with great practice and concentration, is able to change and maintain his shape at will. And, but the entire story really kind of plays out with so much more, so much more tragic pathos than that. As in terms of Clayface being somebody that was never, that never wanted to be what he is, that never wanted to hurt anybody, that never really wanted to be a criminal. He just only wanted to be an actor and only wanted to resume the career that was taken from And it's so hard to really minimize what a feat that is to do that with a character and how brave Gini was to take this on with so many characters that he did throughout the series. So by all means, also, if you're going to watch this, check out Feet of Play. It's a great two-parter and one of my favorites that I remember watching when it very first aired. Um, we did mention the Clock King, and I'm only going to mention this because it'll show up later on in uh, the, the next uh, the next volume of episodes. <laughs> Talk about understated villains. Um, essentially, you have a tightly wound businessman who misses his appointment, snaps, goes crazy, and becomes a supervillain. It, it, it's um, it, it's it's just funny to me. I. I didn't quite know what to think of that when I first watched it. It wasn't one that I had remembered from when I, first, when I watched this as a kid. And I thought, huh, <laughs> we don't get Solomon Grundy, and we don't get the Riddler in the first 28 episodes, but we get the Clock King. So, I, you know, 50 words or less, because then I want to talk about the look of the show, and then we got to start wrapping up. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you make of the inclusion of the Clock King? Or, and then in another case, you had the Sewer King, um, and some of these sort of oddball villains that they throw into the show. You know, again, God love him, Dini. You tried. You were actually trying to show some love to villains that previously had never really gotten their due. And sometimes it worked. We also can't minimize the fact that it took plenty of ivy and managed to make her interesting. 
bravo to you for that. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, there's also arguing that even though you tried, it obviously wasn't best to pan out for everybody the way it did for Ivy or Clayface or Mr. Freeze. But the point is, it tried to think outside the box. What if somebody who is willing to just default instantly to every Batman story must be Joker? Because Batman, right. because if Batman, then Joker. That's, that's, well, that's that the thing. You know, I said, I said before, you know, I like the fact that they were willing to be brave enough to stray away from the main, you know, Joker, Riddler, Penguin, Catwoman, uh, Batman 66 foursome. On the other, so, you know, when they're doing stories with gang bosses or Daggett or uh, something along those lines, Boss Higgins or whatever his name was, uh, I'm okay with that. However, I was less okay with it when they went in sort of the opposite direction where it's like, let's now, let, let's now focus on Batman's lesser rose gallery. It was like, huh. <laughs> I, I was, uh, look, I'm gonna, I, this is one of those things where, I really like Batman the Animated Series, and gun to my head, I, it, would, it would be high, highly rated and highly recommended. But I would be remiss if I said every episode was just rock'em, sock'em, four stars, grand slam, hit it out of the park. And I, and I watched that one with the Clock King, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Next. <laughs> you know? well, it's, not, it's not perfect, but again, I'm more forgiving of something that's imperfect if it's something imperfect that's trying to at least look at the, look at something old sure. in a different light. Speaking of something old in a different light, uh, I found the look of the show and the animation style to be very interesting. Because, you know, Batman has been a part of the American culture um, for, what, 50 years now? Uh, it's been around for a long, 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 long time. And so... When you first see Batman, it would be uh, you, you. Of course, would see him with cars of the time and guns of the time and the uh, the culture and uh, the the wardrobe of that era. The problem is that many times when they when they talk about Batman, they seem to leave him in that era, but transpose things from the modern era into that time space. What I, here's what I'm talking about. So Batman fights a group of gangsters, and they're all wearing pinstripes, and they're shooting Tommy guns. And in the next scene, Batman's analyzing data on what appears to be a modern computer. You know, and then he goes for a drive, right, in the, back, in the Batmobile. And he's in a car chase with what looks to be, uh, you know, 1920s, 1930s type uh, vehicles. And and in the next scene, we're back to modern inventions again. And it's they they, they and I'm not saying it was a bad thing. Uh, it was just interesting, and it's worth talking about. And I want to get your take on it. That they couldn't quite decide what time period this takes place in, and it was this very odd amalgamation of both um, mid 20th century and modern. Uh, modern culture. What what was your? Do you know anything about that, or if, if that was a, what what? Why they made that choice, and what was your take on it? You know what? Quite frankly, 
I don't know why, but I, I like it. it. It's actually one of my favorite things about the show is how it kind of, it really does feel timeless in that it doesn't go out of its way to be too modern or too retro. I, it's hard for me to explain what, to explain why that is. I think it's, it's just the right mix between the two. Um, and I, don't, I would love to know if that was really kind of a, an intent on, on Dean and Bruce Tim's part. But either way, whether it is or not, I love it. So I just, I'm not sure what else to say about it except, except that it's something that, that, fits so that fits so absolutely perfectly. Um, it, did give, it did give the show its own unique look. You know, I, it's one of the things that makes it very memorable. Um, the Batmobile is memorable looking. The the animation style is very memorable. Um, interesting choices in terms of how they drew the characters. Everything is kind of sharp and angular. Um, and I think that would be kind of a staple of, of DC's animation for a while, as you'd see it again in other cartoons. Uh, it was just, uh, it was very, very unique, especially for its time. Um, we got about 15 minutes left and we got to do plugs. Um, so any last thoughts here, uh, anything you want to talk about that we might've missed with regards to the first volume, the first 28 episodes of Batman, the animated series. The first 28 episodes are absolutely fantastic. And I can tell you right now that as a kid, I absolutely remember watching it every single last one of these when they first originally aired. And prior to this, it was the first it was the first cartoon show that I remember really loving that wasn't centered explicitly on trying to sell toys from some distinctive property. Uh, like G.I. Yeah. Joe or Transformers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, it was something that really existed in its own in its own universe, but it was almost like an alternate universe apart from this bigger, more recognized one. It, it was a jolt for me, having grown up on the syndication of the Adam West uh, live action show, to all of a sudden be seeing this show on. This show on Fox Room just being incredibly jazzed because this was also right around the same time as X-Men, the animated series. And Fox had done such an outstanding job with that that I was thrilled to see what they were going to do with other comic characters. And shortly, I believe, after or before this one also came Fox's similarly awesome Spider-Man series. And but none of those shows really managed to capture in such a unique and kind of timeless way everything that you really need to say about a character, about his villains, and about the world he lives in. If I had to show somebody something to really sum up who Batman is, what he's all about, what his origins are, and why he is just so goddamn awesome, believe it or not, it wouldn't even be a comic that I'd necessarily show him. Chances are it would probably be the first season of this show. Yep, I wholeheartedly agree with you. 
All right, in two weeks, uh, which will put us at August, where are we? Today's the 31st, uh, it'll be August 14th. We will be looking at the next grouping of, um, it's, it's weird the way they did this. Uh, it'll be the next grouping of Batman the Animated Series. This is all actually season one, um, but it's volume two we'll be looking at. And volume two takes us from episode 29, starting with Eternal Youth, a Poison Ivy episode, uh, all the way to episode uh, 65, ending with uh, The Worrymen, featuring The Mad Hatter, September 16th, 1993. So 29 through 65, we'll be talking about next two weeks, April 14th, um, then April, August, sorry, August. Then August 28th, we'll be starting volume three, which is uh, called season two, actually. And it's, uh, the, it, it converts from Batman the Animated Series to the adventures of Batman and Robin. And that's uh, 20 episodes. Um, two weeks after that, which will be the... And, and folks, I can, uh, I can tell you this. When we get into talking about when it becomes the adventures of Batman and Robin, when Robin starts to play more of a role... I am going to backtrack a little bit to this volume to talk a little bit more about, because I believe that Robin's Reckoning is in this volume, and we didn't really talk about it, um, as well as Appointment in Crime Alley. Because, uh, no, actually, I stand corrected. Robin's Reckoning is, no, it is next season, I believe. So I stand corrected. Um, so let's just kind of chalk that up right now as something that I'm really looking forward to in addition to also discussing uh, Appointment in Crime Alley, which is another one that is just... It's the, kind of, it's the kind of episode and the kind of drama and the kind of emotion that you just... And we might even throw up the Beware the Grey Ghost in there, too, because you just don't see episodes like this anymore, and you hadn't quite seen anything like that or you, yeah, that's that, that sounds about right. Um, you hadn't seen anything like this before that, and you haven't seen anything quite like this since then. Um, in terms of animated shows, really taking their characters seriously and really fleshing them out, and really telling backstory, telling backstory like this in a way that invests. You. All right, and on September 11th, we will conclude our look at the Batman animated features with the new adventure, sorry, the new Batman adventures aired um, from 1997 to 1999, and um, uh, how many episodes was this? Oh, it was a lot. <laughs> but uh, that'll be our last one, and then we'll get back to doing movies again. I'm not quite sure which one yet. We'll t I'll talk with Sean about it, and we'll figure it out. But you've got from now until September 11th to talk Batman, the animated series, and all its various iterations. Uh, that's the plan there. So as I stated earlier, uh, Sean was on an episode of the Whiskey Rebellion this past Tuesday, um, and every Tuesday is the Whiskey Rebellion with myself and Gavin Napier, uh, talking news of the day, various other topics, conspiracies, what have you. It's a fun little show. Give it a listen. Um, a week from tonight, the Metal Hammer of Doom also returns from a brief hiatus. 
just as soon as we came back, we left again. Um, I, I was at Disney. That's what it was. I was at Disney last week. I was at Be Our Guest with my family, and uh, we couldn't do the show. So um, uh, as promised, we will bring you the latest album from uh, New Orleans black metal band Goat Whore. So um, check that out. we got a lot of albums coming up that we're going to be reviewing. New Judas Priest, uh, New Goat Whore, New Dragon Force, New Primus. Primus, Primus covered the entire Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So uh, when that comes out in October, we'll definitely be reviewing that. Um, yeah, we got a lot of we got a lot of good stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, be, so right here Thursday, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom, Goat Whore. Um, next Wednesday, you have two back-to-back shows. Uh, you'll have my and Robert Winfrey's review of Guardians of the Galaxy, which is looking to be, as I predicted, the best movie of the summer and the best, certainly the best Marvel movie of the summer. It's, it, it beat uh, Captain America. Haven't seen it yet, but that's 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 the way it's going so far. And uh, I'm sure that's how I'll feel when I see it this Sunday. So this Wednesday night, uh, Rob Winfrey and I are going to review Guardians of the Galaxy. And then just as soon as we uh, hang it up, Jason Teasley, Jesse Starcher, and Robert Cooper are going to pick it up for an episode of The Cheap Seats. Um, So you also, uh, for those of you interested in pro wrestling, Gavin and I did an emergency WrestleCast on Monday. We're talking about the whole uh, Spike TV potentially canceling TNA Impact. That's up in the archives. That's actually our featured uh, podcast here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Uh, go ahead and check that out. And there should be a WrestleCast up soon in theory, one would assume. Uh, so go ahead and look for that on the casualheroes.net. Um, finally, Friday nights, Robert Winfrey, everyone loves the bad guy. He's working his way through pro wrestling heels. This Friday night, uh, he'll have somebody on to talk Bobby the Brain Heenan. And uh, Sunday night is the 401 Ground and Pound radio show. There's not another UFC show until August 16th, and who cares? It's Ryan Bader versus Ovin St. Prue. Whoop-a-dee-doo! However, I am sure, since news broke this past week, that Nick Diaz signed... Uh, to fight Anderson Silva January 31st. I'm sure that's what him and Jeff will be kvetching about. So go ahead and give that a listen Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Sean, plugs, last words, uh, recipes, uh, foregone conclusions, picture postcards. Go. (laughs) All right, folks. Uh, First off, a couple quick thanks. Uh, Thank you, as always, to our immensely talented and also immensely busy title card artist, Benjamin J. Cologne, uh, he of SoulXO.com fame, and also Revolution of the Mask, alongside Lewis Linkara Lovehoud. Uh, he did another outstanding job on yet another absolutely superb bit of original art for us. Uh, he absolutely does us right with every single show that we do. And I actually picked this series, particularly because I really believe that he would have a damn fun time um, drawing in the style, drawing in the style of uh, Bruce Tim. So thank you, Ben, for that. We obviously appreciate you immediate, immensely. Uh, you can find him at soulxo.com and also follow him on Twitter at soulxo and any number of numerous other places. Uh, always great to chat up about comics, wrestling, music, TV, movies, anything and everything under the sun. Um, 
Thank you to you know, let's do that throw out there. Thank you to Paul Dini and Bruce Tim for creating just such a, a bold and outstanding property that's given us so much to talk about even even years later in all our fanboyish glory. Uh, you you truly did right by the spirit of um, Bob Kane and Bill Finger, arguably more so than anybody else since he passed. And that is saying an awful, awful lot coming from a very big Jeff Lowe, Jim Lee, Tim Sale, and Grant Morrison. Uh, on the other hand, as Mark mentioned, most Tuesdays you can catch you can catch me at 7 o'clock Eastern Time on the Whiskey Rebellion alongside himself, Gavin Napier, and various and sundry others talking about this, that, and all of the things. Uh, but in the meantime, also on September 19th, if you are in the Phoenix area, by all means, there are still tickets available for the Siam Fight Productions finale of the second annual Siam Cup Junior Muay Thai Grand Prix. Um, it's uh, it looks to be an absolutely stacked card to be main evented by the tournament by the tournament final, as Tiago Azaredo and my good friend and business colleague Brandon Jones always put together. If you can't happen to make it to the show for whatever reason, either you just can't get tickets, or you live outside the area, don't worry, GFL.TV has got you covered. The live iPay-per-view is only $15 on the night of the show. And, oh, by the way, there's certain there's this other certain uh, handsome, long-haired devil in a black Mass Effect sweatshirt who is also going to be returning for his second card of live iPay-per-view color commentary. So by all means, if nothing else, tune in for that. Uh, for more information, uh, like, follow, subscribe to Siam Fight Productions on Facebook, and you can also find more on their website at siamfightproductions.com. All right. Uh, so for Sean Comer, I am your mandated reporter, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Uh, it's been great getting the show together uh, this week. I'm kind of glad we were able to do this, if not a little bit uh, a little bit late. We will be back to our normal 9 o'clock start time in two weeks, uh, Thursday night, for Volume 2 of Batman the Animated Series. Until then, be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>